everybody. Welcome to Rising from the Ashes. Today we are bringing you a very special episode. It's so special that it's actually highlighted on our Patreon. We thought we would bring it to you today to highlight some of our bonus content that we post on the Patreon. You can subscribe for $3 a month to get access to so many hours of great content that has been up for over the past year. So much to chew on. And you could download them straight to your phone and all that goodness. Today, this conversation with Jay Widener is a big deal for my buddy Juan uh, and me from the Juan and Juan podcast, Juan Ayala, and we nailed down this conversation with one of our favorite authors that wrote, co-authored the book, The Cross of Hendai, with the late and great Vincent Bridges. Jay Widener is an author as well as a documentarian, and he is big in these circles. So this was a great conversation. We got a lot deeper into the Fulcanelli mysteries, and we just genuinely had a great conversation with somebody who we consider an OG in the field. So without further ado, here is the Patreon-exclusive episode with Jay Widener. So what they do is they choose areas that have certain electromagnetic quality. They like volcanic tunnels for instance, because the lava has sealed the outside of the wall, so the minerals, the heavy crystallized minerals, are in a circle. So they're, they're creating vortex hyperfields just on their own. And so they choose these areas. Vulcanelli means Vulcan Canelli. Canelli is tunnel in Italian and in Latin, and Vulcan is volcano. So his name means tunnel in the volcano. So, and these places are also known for what? UFOs, strange sightings, weird places, underground cities, all this weird uh, lore is always associated with these places because they're leak places in between the, the parallel plasma universe. Welcome to the show, Jay. It's an honor to have you, sir. How are you doing today? I'm doing really good. Happy uh, holidays to everybody. Happy holidays to everybody. And today we have Jay Widener, obviously, on the show. And we have, as a co-host, everybody's homie, homie Romy, homie Romy, who introduced me to the book. So I figured, hey, why not have him on? His knowledge is up to par with the subject at hand. And I've been studying alchemy for a little bit now, and it's been at the core of everything that I pretty much talk about. I relate alchemy to almost everything I talk about nowadays because I think life itself, existence itself, goes back to some form of alchemy, some sort of 
energy transference. And the, the thing with alchemy, it's such a multifaceted topic. It's multidimensional, it's spiritual, it's literal, it's metaphysical, whatever you want to apply it to. And this book, we're going to be talking, we're going to be talking mostly about the mysteries of the great cross of it's not Hende, is it? It's, you say it differently, right? Well, it's Undai in French. but Undai. Uh, I like to say Hende because um, I think it was, because if, if, you, if you know your uh, British form of pronunciation, you drop the H at the beginning of mm. the word. So herb is herb. Uh, Henry is Henry, right? Well, this is Ende, right? End day. Mm-hmm. End day becomes end day, which is what it's all about. Awesome. So end day and al- alchemy and the end of time, which I didn't connect eschatology with alchemy, but it would make sense because we're going to be talking about Fulconelli as well. He talks about literally uh, part of the magnum opus is manipulating time stepping outside of space and time to be able to manipulate it from a point of view so it would only be appropriate to to how these guys were trying to predict the end of the world right this this double cataclysm that you talk about in the book and how i said i started i'll be honest i started this book on audio format okay i said hey let me listen to it i'll take screenshots when i'm taking notes and, you know, that, that way, while I'm doing something, I could be, no, I started with the audiobook. <laughs> notice that it's way too heavy, way, way too deep. And I had to finish on the physical copy. So, and again, these are just notes that I took on here really quickly. I was trying, I wasn't, I was trying not to highlight the entire book because it's just so much it's, in it's here. True. And I picked my favorite parts. A lot of the Kabbalah stuff, I'll be a hundred percent. Sometimes, you know, when it comes to the tree of life, I'm not a hundred percent. I haven't studied that too much. So, and I know it's got to do with the manipulation of reality and what, what all these guys were into, but Jay can, for the people who haven't heard about you. And again, I know you've been very influential for a lot of people in the community. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you started on, on this topic in particular? Uh, yeah, <clears throat> I was, uh, I was a young uh, man living in uh, Hollywood being a screenwriter and, um, discovering that maybe I didn't want to really make films in Hollywood. Uh, and uh, I would spend my uh, weekends uh, roaming around looking, uh, going to book uh, garage sales, looking for books. I'm a book collector. I have thousands of books. And um, one day I walked into a place in uh, in the Valley, San Fernando Valley. It was a garage sale. And uh, there was like there was probably 70 books. I had 20 bucks on me. They were a buck each. And they were some of the most phenomenal. I still have all of them of occult secret knowledge books uh, ever published. And apparently the lady that was uh, running the garage sale didn't even know what her husband was doing. And so she was putting these books up for a dollar. Just the mystery of the cathedral's hardcover at that time was worth 600. And this was in 1986. All right. Oh my God. Hardback. Oh, all these books were worth $1,000 at the time. Now they're worth 50000 I got them for 20 bucks. I had 20 bucks on me. I bought 20 bucks. Went home, perused most of the books. But then I came upon Mystery of the Cathedrals. And 
Um, you know, I really considered myself a smart person. I, um, you know, I wrote to a lot of people. I had ongoing letter uh, campaigns with people that were, you know, highly intelligent people. And I was only in my 30s, but I was, you know, writing higher than I, I should have been, I guess. And I always picked, in my life, I've always picked older people to hang with. So when I was 20, I hung with 30-year-olds. When I was 30, I hung with 40-year-olds all the way up. Now I'm in my going to be close to 70, and I'm hanging out with 85-year-olds. And um, and so I read the book, and I think I threw it against the wall like five times. I, I, I read it. I go, <laughs> wall, and I said, let's go out to dinner. I need a drink, you know, and or whatever, because that was how it went. And then all the time I'm in dinner, all I'm thinking about is that friggin' book. That's back there against, you know, on the floor that I threw against the wall, you know, and trying to entertain the lady. And all I can think about is getting back there. And, and I get back there, I immediately go back into the book. And I'm like, okay, this doesn't make any sense. I cannot understand what this book is about. And I, so then I said I was going to understand it. And I did. And I realized at one point that all of the italicized words needed to be investigated. There's strange italicized words all through the copy of the text. And so this is way before internet. I went to the Seattle Public Library every day at nine o'clock when it would open. I'd stay up there until about five, six o'clock at night investigating every single italicized thing. So I ended up learning about the Cathars and about um, just every kind of incredible esoteric knowledge that I could ever learn, not really understanding why I'm even doing all of this, except mm -hmm. that I'm trying to understand this unfathomable book. Uh, <clears throat> and then uh, um, I slowly started learning the lingo and the language and what was really going on and what was actually really being said. And, and of course, then this was expanding me out to learning about um, – you know, the electric universe and plasma physics and, you know, and uh, trying to put it all together into this thing until I came to the conclusion that history and time itself is an alchemical experiment and that there is an end to that experiment. And that experiment in alchemy is the transmutation of base metals into finer metals or base material into light, gold and light. And I think that we are at the uh, very crux of that point in time right now. I think that, um, that the sun has gone from gold to white in the last 20 years. That's seriously important because the sun represents the you know, the, the alchemical uh, presence. And the fact that it's changing color should really concern us. And, um, <clears throat> and the events on the ground, of course, around us are um, uh, rising up of dark forces that seek to make sure that we cannot achieve enlightenment. And um, as we because of the internet, really, as we move towards this mass collective awakening, which is definitely going on, which is predicted by the great alchemical experiment for alchemical earth, you're going to see this ramp up of, of 
wow, one revelation after another with the counter, which is really growing and is angry and is terrified. And I, it, you know, and, and to this day, all I can say is I don't know what they're terrified of, except that it must be us um, figuring everything out and they don't want that. And so as we begin to figure everything out and realize that we are great enlightened beings who come from a great incredible past of, of a race of people that were incredible, that could build and do almost anything. And we have just the remnants of that race around us. But even those remnants tell us that there is that what this race was, was impossible, at least for us. Uh, it's not dynastic Egypt that you need to look at. It's pre-dynastic Egypt. It's not Inca Peru remnants that you need to look at. It's pre-Inca Peru remnants you need to look at because those can't be explained. Those are not it's impossible. It's impossible what they did. It's, you know, it's one thing for the dynastic Egyptians to build pillars by cutting like hamburger slices and then putting them on top of each other with levees. But the pre-dynastic ones, they would cut the dang thing completely out of the granite, 100 feet tall obelisks, completely cut out of granite and move 500 miles south Um without breaking uh, over and over and over and over again. And, and there, the, this cannot be um, the, what, how this happened cannot be uh, answered by conventional uh, understandings of what is going on, but it can be by alchemy and alchemy is the uh, concentration of etheric, uh, etheric energy into either the body or into a piece of metal or into a building um, or into a, a, a chemical um, or into uh, food or into water. Um, it's it's you know, into everything. You can raise animals in an alchemical way. I do. All right. So it's not, it, it's, it's an all thing. It's the science of the ancients that we lost. And the, it would appear from my position that a very sinister force moved in and is bound and determined to keep us ignorant and that they are the ones that are after all of the people who are seeking this kind of knowledge. And they've been after us for thousands of years. So we know that, according to mainstream history, alchemy originated in Egypt, right? That's what they say. Do you think this was this is a lost science of the ancients? So they might have gotten it from this pre-Egyptian yeah. civilization. So th this idea of being able to, how I said, and how you're saying, there there are forces at work at the moment to stop us from 
Homo luminous is what you call it in the book, this enlightened light being. And it reminds me of the Taoist monks with the with internal alchemy and the that light body, that homunculus, <laughs> the the one where they as you know, you turn the energy in on itself and you're able to, you know, congeal and, and crystallize a small little man within you. And you're saying that's what they're stopping us from. I mean, if you look at Hollywood with all the movies that they're putting out, social yep. media. All these conglomerates, what they put in our foods, what they they're stopping us because they know it's inevitable that this is gonna happen and we're going to achieve this magnum opus as a whole? Or what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, the thing is, is that because I've kind of been there through the whole thing over the last 30 years, as I realize and others. Uh, very good people that are friends of mine. We all kind of realize, you know, we're boomers. We're going to die soon. So we're not afraid anymore. And, um, but 30 years ago, when we all started, it was like, it was a different world. We could say things that we can't say now. And we could speculate about things that we can't speculate on now without getting in a lot of trouble. And, um, and so we've seen as we got more and more looser with what we were giving out and saying, <clears throat> you could see the obvious dark forces rising up. And the more that we did it, the more the dark forces rose up until it became, you know, I'm involved in a $5 million lawsuit right now, right? Uh, you know, because the dark forces want me squashed. And um, and I did, I'm not even political. I mean, I, I talk about the dark forces, but not in a way like we need to rise up and destroy them. I don't I don't get into that stuff. I'm not into that because I know that actually the way to not defeat them, but stop them is through the homo luminous and the alchemical enlightenment of humanity. And so that is the, the, the uh, route I'm going down. And that drives them crazy because the YouTube log algorithms can't figure out what the hell I'm talking about on my show. And, and so I'm staying like out of the fray. Right. And so we have to, we have to, uh, we, we're on that place now where we can either go towards this technocratic uh, future of chips and everybody uh, 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 tied into the centralized system, which I do not believe is going to happen. In fact, I know it will not happen. We as, we as humans live for the fight. It's not the victory that you seek. It's the fight itself. It's just like the hunt is the only really fun part. The kill is not actually very much fun. It's the hunt that, that is fun. The fight is what we're in now. And the fight is a spiritual war between us and forces that are far more darker than I ever imagined. Uh, and every day it becomes more and more apparent that uh, this force seeks to completely press itself down onto us. The uh, current spending bill that they're arguing right now. My God, if you didn't know, if you, if, if you were an atheist and you didn't believe there was a Satan, all you got to do is read that bill. See, this, this bill, if I was Satan, I would write this bill. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's the point we're at now. And the destruction of this realm, which is what the Hende Cross talks about, is 
this is what Vincent and I kept coming up against in our um, research back 25 years ago was um, we would read Vedic texts, we'd read the alchemical texts, we'd read all these texts about anything that had to do with eschatology, right? And it always ended up that the end of the world was a good thing. It was this really mm -hmm. super positive thing for the human race and it had nothing to do with uh, you know, the uh, everybody dying in a giant fire or whatever. Um, so, you know, th that itself was the INRI, right? In, in fire, nature is renewed. And so we know that what this world is right now, it's not sustainable and it can't go on. You can't, there isn't enough cobalt to build enough batteries for electric cars. There's people are, we've, we've lost our collective mind. We don't understand what, what's going on. There, we, we, that future that they're promising us, the uh, WEF people and all those guys, that's not mm -hmm. gonna happen. That's never gonna happen. There's not, it's, 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 a, it's a fantasy run by uh, the new class of the manager system who appear to be anti-us. That's all oh, it's the transmutation of a fictional reality into our actual reality. So yeah. my whole thing is yes. if That's they're against me, if, if, but why is it Jay that they're against us finding about these arts and, and using these things is on my show. I talk about these things in order to unveil it, right? That's what the apocalypse is. The unveiling to talk to people about it, to bring awareness to it. Now, why is it that they try and stop us from discovering this but yet they use these same tricks against us almost as if it does actually work what are your thoughts on that because if you look at hollywood government and all these things they're using alchemy real time with their symbolism with their words with everything that they do and any exchange of money any exchange of money is alchemy and the if you follow you know like tracy twyman wrote about if you follow the the foundation of the monetary system that we have today, it has alchemical roots. So I agree. I just want to say quickly, Tracy uh, told me uh, about uh, six months before she passed away that, Jay, I will never commit suicide. Just say it. Oh, we nice. know 100 no, percent. We, yeah. we know what happened there. Yeah. I mean, you don't have to. You know, we know exactly what happened there. Yep. So I call it flying too close to the sun. And, when, uh, and, yeah. and usually what I've seen with people in the community who any if you look at his story, history, you see that the people who usually were telling something that went against the mainstream, they were, those were usually the ones that ended up dead. Those are the ones that were killed off. That's what the whole Christian mythos is really about. Is mm -hmm. this guy coming and telling people stuff they don't want to hear, and then they crucify his ass, which is also mm -hmm. alchemy, by the way. When I... Um, I was raised a Catholic, but I rejected the religion early on. Um, but later, you know, like maybe 15 years ago, I reread the New Testament, and it's actually quite an, uh, an alchemical um, uh, uh, testimony, really. Uh, it's all about the, uh, the uh, speaking truth to power and then having power destroy you. And then you, uh, uh, through alch alchemical methods, you are resurrected uh, to defeat those powers. And, you know, whether that story is true, it doesn't really matter. That is an alchemical process. And it is about your body as a crystal or a Christ. 
um, uh, being reborn into light. And, um, and so, in a way, Christianity is the most alchemical of all religions, although um, uh, uh, some esoteric Judaism gets close, only because it retains the Egyptian messages that, mm-hmm. that somehow got into the Hebraic uh, uh, text. In other words, the, the tree of life and and the geometry of, of existence and sacred geometry that somehow managed to go from Egypt into the Canaanites or the Phoenicians, who I believe are the, the ones that we should be talking about mm-hmm. as far as... Um, the alchemical purveyors of knowledge on the planet. I would say it was probably the Phoenicians who lived in Israel and Lebanon area and were extremely influential uh, throughout the world. I believe that they are the ones who somehow found the original alchemical texts and translated them and then went out into the world with their ships to see if what these texts were saying was friggin' true, and it was. And this is where the Pira Reese maps can, comes from, uh, where South America and Antarctica are clearly delineated before there was an ice age. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and, and you know, people like Graham Hancock know all this. He His great show, uh, Ancient Apocalypse, is all about this. He doesn't know any of this, though. He doesn't know alchemy. <laughs> he, but he's a good journalist, and he and he discovered mm-hmm. it. So, yeah, that the Cross of Hende is a monument by a secret society of advanced uh, people, uh, and it was there to tell us about the past event of a gigantic double catastrophe, which I believe, no longer believe the double catastrophe as described um, in the book, by the way, um, because of new research. So I believe that the double mm-hmm. catastrophe is probably more akin to a marriage between Graham Hancock's comet theory and uh, Robert Schock's uh, solar flash ending the younger Dryas theory. They're both the same. So the double, and it's clearly shown on the sun face of the uh, uh, cross of Hende. So you have four objects in the corners and then the angry sun. And the four objects, I believe, are the comet that came 13,000 years ago, broke into four pieces. Mm-hmm. A bunch of pieces hit you know, Canada and North America, causing the younger Dryas. And for 1,400 years, we were thrown into the coldest period. Getting some ever. feedback. Is that me on my end? I'm sorry. No, I don't know. That sounds good over here. Let me turn down a little bit. Okay, hang on. So, and then I believe that first the comets came, crashed into the earth, uh, caused like a nuclear winter, created the younger Dryas. 1,400 years, the biggest cold that ever happened occurred. Hundreds of thousands of species disappeared. And then the solar flare came melted the ice that had built up over the Younger Dryas almost overnight, maybe two weeks. Everything came flooding through the the floods up in, in Washington State. Um, uh, the Sahara Desert appears to have had gigantic floods. Um, it's as if 
this huge ice buildup happened and then wham, it came down and, and literally the oceans rose 400 feet. And um, that happened about 11,500 years ago. And, um, and that's a double catastrophe. It's, it was a, the most mm. trying event in human and probably historically for the mammalian life forms on earth. It was horrifying. Do you think um, that through through the process that we see as the transition and the trend, the the evolution of of religions over the 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 centurion, right, uh, from from ancient Egypt and pre dynastic Egypt, you know, speaking of um, religion in an alchemical sense, that each time that religious syncretism takes place, it almost uh, each time that a religion sits upon another and absorbs its energy almost, um, like the passing of the stone of destiny or something along those lines to absorb that, that religion. Do you think that, uh, that that's an alchemical process that is almost what the, uh, what the powers that be have been, been really trying to like tote around to make something new each time that religious syncretism takes place. And if so, we found ourselves in such a uh, <laughs> transmutative muck in modernity um, through this crazy alchemical process and history of these higher echelons of power. Yeah, I think that, um, I think the powers that be have a lot of control over religion. I'm pretty sure that the same group that, you know, Mecca, where Muhammad was, was a big, huge outpost of the powers that be, as was mm. Jerusalem around Jesus' time. And I, I, and I think <clears throat> that the actual religion itself is grassroots. But as it rises up and gains popularity, then they come down and they and they change, as we know the Romans did to Christianity. Mm -hmm. They rearranged mm -hmm. everything and made it look like the Jews had committed deicide, and therefore they could go in and conquer um, Jerusalem because that was a big problem for the Romans at the time. And um, but I think that there is this um, alchemical underpinning to religion and to spiritual thought that is free of the powers that be. And that's what drives them crazy. Because yes. you go down, like, how is the powers that be going to stop me from saying that I have a... Uh, um, <clears throat> that I have a light body, that it centers down my spine, and that this light body I can make as big as I want it, or I can shrink it in as much as I want it, because I have control over this. And this light body can become so strong that it can influence nature and animals and people all around me uh, if I so desire. Now, they can't stop me from saying that because they probably don't quite understand what I'm saying, but if everybody understood what I was saying, then they would be defeated because all you have to do is just expand our light body and blow them out of the water. Um, so they've created uh, what, we, what I call light body constriction areas, which are called cities. Ooh. And so when you're in <laughs> the city, you don't want your light body to be commiserating with 
possibly a criminal that's 15 feet away from you and a, you know somebody's a crack whore over here and whatever right you don't want your life so you constrict it you're in the city and you're like uh i can feel yeah. it when I, I live in the country where i can let my light body go out but when i go to the city i can feel definitely myself constricting my 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 light body and so uh, you know especially in elevators and real tight places and so if you live in a city, you're going to have a big problem with uh, doing this. So you have to go out of your way to create practices and disciplines that allow you to uh, expand your light body. So different areas have different problems, right? If you live in the Great Plains, you're not around many minerals or mountains or anything. So you've got, you got that kind of problem. So you have to rectify that. So alchemy is about, you know, your location, how, how much you understand the, the, the place around you. And religion is, and spirituality is the grassroots um original grassroots concept of all of this, um, of which now uh, we're beginning to uh, um, lose, they, they hope, but that's not going to happen. So um, one of the ways that they control us is through fear, fear of death. And, um, you know, everything, the movies and everything, ah, right, everybody's going to die, it's all the end of the world and all that. But in alchemy, we know that we're just um, electrical fields, you know, um, nested within each other. So my body is an electrical field nested within the field of my house and, and my family. And then there's another field of my community and then my country and then the world and then the universe. And it's a series of nested uh, infinities, you might say. And so... I know that when I die, and I will, I know that when I die, that my field, no matter how strong it is, is going to start collapsing in on me as I get sick or I'm in a car accident or somebody shoots me or whatever, right? Freezing to death. And as um, it constructs, as it, as, as it constricts, it, it comes down to the skin level. That is when you start getting cold by the way, because you're actually, your light body is heating you. It's not giving you a lot of heat, but it's giving you a, it is giving you heat. And I can explain that in, from nature very clearly. In other words, there's animals in nature that have no body fat that can live in 30 below degree weather uh, uh, and not die and not have any food or anything because they're living off their light body. Uh, coyotes, uh, buffalo. I can show you, go to Yellowstone in the middle of the winter, and I can show you these animals. Uh, I can show you coyotes that weigh 25 pounds, full-grown coyotes that are shrunk down to 25 pounds uh, completely fine. And by spring, they're going to be up to 150 pounds, all right? Because they're living alchemically. They're mm -hmm. they, by reducing the food supply and being in the cold increases the electrical current that goes on and the, and the animal lives off that current, which you can also live off of your own current. But as you die and that uh, light body begins to pass underneath the level of the skin, you'll get really cold. That's the sign that you're going. 
That's a sign that, you know, you haven't got long to go. So at that point, yeah, make good with your uh, loved ones and everything because you've got maybe 10, 15 minutes to go. As the light body can finally constricts down, it grabs a hold of the spinal column and lights it up and shoots upward right through a filament that connects to the larger plasma body called the shashumna in Hindu Vedic uh, terminology. This is a millionth of the size of a, ha a hair, human hair. And it shoots up. That's the tunnel that you see when you die. And you go back into the larger plasma nested fields um, to determine what you're going to be and what you're going to do next. Are you going to come back? Are you going to go to the next level? Um, uh, did you did you spend your time wisely here in this existence? That's like the super most important question that's going to be asked of you when you pass into the next realm is what did you do? Did you spend your time masturbating and watching the Lakers or were you actually doing something with your life? Were you helping, <laughs> helping yourself? Were you, were you working every day to try to make yourself better, more honest, you know, uh, in, in, in a, um, a fearless manner with the world? And, and this is the path of the wizard and the alchemist. And so there's nothing to be afraid of. Um, there's really the only fear is what you have to fear. I'm, I'm sure if you saw a mountain lion on the on the path, you would be very afraid, and you should be, and you should react as a, as a person filled with fear because you don't want to lose your life in a gory way. But as far as the final ending of this reality. There's no ending. It's it's fire. Nature is renewed. You are always renewing yourself. Mm -hmm. You are a eternal spirit that has somehow been graced with a body so that you can eat and touch and fuck and uh, all the great things that exist in this world. And 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 you're one day you're going to go. When you go, you're going to take all of that with you, and it becomes part of the electrical etheric record, the Akashic record. And that is what alchemy is. Alchemy is this understanding of this larger field. And, and, and so what alchemists try to do is they try to take this etheric world, this etheric force that's all around us and concentrate it. That's it. That's it. They try, to they try to concentrate it in their tantien. They try to concentrate it in, in, in metal. I, I have a, a, a chunk of gold that I concentrate these energies into. Um, and then I flake some of it off every once in a while and I drink it in water. Jay, and, can uh, I ask you, are you an alchemist? Uh, we're all alchemists. Um, <laughs> a practicing you know, alchemist? Of course. Nice. Of course, I'm a practicing alchemist. My uh, morning drink takes almost a half hour to make. You know, and <laughs> um, it probably costs—I don't know—ten bucks a glass for an eight-ounce <laughs> glass, um, at least, maybe fifteen. I haven't really ever done the math on it, but you know, I buy ingredients from all over the world um, that I've investigated and looked at. And someday I'm going to make a video about that. And so people can understand how to, um, how to alchemize your life. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, I go out in the sun all the time. I don't use sunscreen. I think it's insane to be afraid of the sun. The sun is our greatest friend. Um, 
Uh, I'm with Cliff High, you know, sun your balls, I think he calls it. You know, go outside, nice. take your friggin' clothes off, right? And get, get that sun all over you. Don't be afraid. Don't listen to those idiots that tell you that you're supposed to be afraid of the sun, right? You're not supposed to be afraid. You get out, get some fresh air, and, and eat organic food. And um, <clears throat> if you eat meat, which I do, you know, Make friends with the animals that you're going to eat. Um, I know it sounds weird, but do have a great relationship with them. I do. And um, they love me and uh, they want to be part of me. And that's alchemy, too. <clears throat> and so alchemy is everything. And we can. Um, once you understand how powerful and strong you are, then you can start um going into other parallel universes that are around us. And then mm. you pick up more information from the beings and inhabitants of those universes. So, you know, the thing, the funny thing about all this is when I first found that book, Mystery of the Cathedrals, I would never would have believed that I would one day be saying all this crazy shit. <laughs> but, Jay, so... Do you think because you're talking about Falconelli, do you think that Falconelli could have been this, the Elias Artista, the 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 ascended master that he was? Because another thing about alchemy is during the magnum opus, you become this androgynous being, and we do have accounts of Falconelli appearing as uh, I call him the the crossdresser, but as a woman yes. as well. And I think that's the funniest part. Do you think he was like this Elias Artista, Saint Germain character that he was outside of the fabric of reality and would just troll people because he was a troll, right? And we can get that out of the way. He was a troll. He was. He was. He was. An, he was a troll, and his whole purpose was to prove to you that although he wasn't going to give you the secret of alchemy, he was going to prove to you that alchemy was true and real. That was mm -hmm. his purpose. And so what he did was he, he, he did a mind fuck on you um, where, you know, he would take only the most intelligent people could read the book. So nobody's reading that book without having like a pretty heady uh, background in reading. So um, he's only he's only appealing to the very top. 2%, 3% of intelligence. And he's challenging them from the beginning, like saying, you don't know crap. You don't know anything. You think you know everything. You don't know anything. And so you get pissed off. And that's the whole point. A trolling. That's what trolls do, right? They piss you off. So then he gets so then you get suckered in by the troll job. And then pretty soon you're in there and then you're like going, Holy crap, this is all real. And everything I thought I knew was completely wrong. And uh, then you get embarrassed. You go through that whole part of your existence where, you know, now you gotta go around and tell everybody that that all that arrogant crap that I was feeding you was all wrong and now I'm, you know, super humble and, and you know, and, and that's hard to do too, especially when you're arrogant like I was. <laughs> and, um, but, you know, it was a humbling experience. And so, yes, I think that Fulcanelli's whole purpose was to take a certain kind of individual and transform them, uh, to initiate them. It was, Initiate. it was like, okay, all the, all the masters are gone. He implies it over and over in the book that all the great masters are gone. They've all gone off to wherever they go to. And so he left this book behind and it, it was a committee. I don't think Fulcanelli was one guy. I think it was mm. maybe 10 or 11 people. Schwaller, Delubitz, 
um, Champagne. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a bunch of people that were involved in it. And it was designed to initiate you into this thing. And, um, you know, uh, all through this um, investigation, I kept coming across weird stories. And one of the weird stories that I heard was that Schwaller de Lubitsch, the great uh, French Egyptologist, that he had a school in Switzerland called the the School of Light, something deluxe. I can't remember what it was called. And one night, a strange, olive-skinned, dark-haired guy shows up and uh, wants to talk to Schwaller, and they spend all night alone in a room talking. And this is uh, Schwaller's wife that tells this story. And, and then the next morning, Schwaller's all excited. This guy, whoever he is, he leaves. We don't even know who he is. Uh, I think his name was Muhammad. And he and Schwaller says, we got to go to Egypt. We've got to go to Egypt. I've got stuff there I've got to look at, right? So he immediately goes to Egypt, goes to the Temple of Luxor, writes the Temple of Man, the whole thing of, of Schwaller. But what he let out later to his wife was that this guy was a Sufi, some kind of odd sect of Sufi uh, masters who yes. were dedicated to transforming the human race, and they had to keep quiet to stay away from, um, you know, I don't know, what do you call it? The cabal, whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, and so if you go through alchemical literature over and over, you'll find these strange incidences very much like that, where someone is just minding their own business, and then all of a sudden this olive-skinned individual shows up and does <laughs> a green man and then they go off on a tangent completely opposite of what they were doing and this happens all through and Fulcanelli intimates that it's a group of Sufis that are at the center of this and that they are determined to um, let the righteous rule the earth is what they say and the righteous mm. are the ones that understand alchemy and the, and the uh, science of light. Sufism also- is incredibly uh, mystic, and I love Sufism. I love Idris Shah, who is one yep. of probably the most prolific Sufic writers, and I love his style of writing. It's beautiful. Um, and then he, he intertwines like white and black magic into his writings just elegantly. Yes. Um, but... Uh, yeah, the Sufis, I really do feel like are some of the last mystics that have the uh, understanding of how to utilize this old technology that was the architecture that Falconelli describes. Yeah. Because the whirling dervishes are in the basements, they're spinning, they're chanting, they're resonating, and they're moving. And I feel like a lot of the magic that we are able to tap into with our awesome vessels and bodies is through creating like friction, whether that's like a cosmic or a a conscious friction by like looking at something, creating a conscious friction or rubbing stones up and getting the stones to be hot and warm. And so I, I love Sufis. I love, and there's so much there. It's Sophie, it's Gnostic, it's wisdom. Yep. 
Yeah, and, and when they dance, they tilt their body. And if you actually do a measurement, it's 23 and a half degrees, which is the tilt of the earth. So it's like, wait, wow. what's going on here? Whoa. And um, yeah, it, it, and, and their name is Sufi. It's got all sorts of different connotations. And um, and you know, the, the original story of the Sufis was that they were out doing their whirling dervishes practices around a campfire or something, and and Muhammad and 800 guys show up with swords, and they walk up to the leader and they stick the sword up to his neck and say, Do you believe in Allah? And the Sufi guy goes, Well, what's Allah? And he says, well, Allah is the creator of the universe. He says, of course we believe in Allah. And then that's so, you know, it didn't matter whether they were actually Muslim or not. They were immediately accepted in because they were smart enough and astute enough to know that, uh, you know, the central core thesis of the of the Islamic religion was completely and utterly correct. And which is also an Islamic religion is also an alchemical religion as the mosques are extremely alchemical and are concentrations of etheric power, um, even though, again, it's like some evil force came in and just stripped uh, the dogma out and ruined it, and like just like they did with Christianity. So there's no more, unless you understand alchemy, you can't understand what the story of Jesus is about. And if you don't understand alchemy, you can't understand what Islam is about. So it's like yeah, but they that's that but they they have this exoteric stuff that they put out there. So they'll put these writings out for you to intake without knowing what they mean. They teach us mathematics, but they don't teach us what the cipher, what the what the symbols, what the sigils mean. You know what I'm saying? So they put us in front of all these things, but they don't teach us exactly what it means. And I was raised Pentecostal Christian, and how when you talk about the let's look at the King James version, right? Let's talk about oh. alchemy. We can we can. Try Trace back a lineage to guys in secret societies who were masters of ciphers, and they're at the core of the spread of one of the largest I call it interdimensional literature, where these these stories, these books, quite literally have shaped humanity over hundreds and thousands of years because it's a story. It's a, it's it's what it is. Now, some people will eat, live, breathe this story and if you look at the i mean this you know king james i mean that's a shady character on his own plus the connection with bacon and you have the connection with shakespeare and all these guys i mean they were messing they knew exactly what they were doing and if you look at shakespeare shakespeare and his influence on the english language which i think at the core of language the the original alphabet only had 17 or 19 letters and they've added things that don't even have never existed in order to demystify us because grammar comes from grimoire i mean we know this this is etymology I'll beg to differ, well, though, sir, because I think that the language itself has been curated to be specifically alchemical, to kind of bring all these other magical workings and then make I I personally and you know this because we have the article, Occultus mm -hmm. Mundi, that I'm focusing on the history of the uh, of the cipher of the modern American alphabet, that that itself is incredibly alchemical and it's a mm -hmm. cipher. For the initiated, for the adepts. For the, exactly. Exactly. So, if you're yeah, not in the club, then you're fucked. Yeah. So Bacon um, Bacon ran the committee that uh, wrote Shakespeare. And um, he was an alchemist. And um, you're right. He, it was all done to inculcate English as an alchemical language. Um, 
maybe not done for exactly great purposes, but done nonetheless. So um, John D was an alchemist and he was probably the inspiration behind Shakespeare in that he told Francis Bacon that he wanted you to, why don't you create a committee and we're going to write these plays that are going to be alchemical knowledge that we're going to inculcate into the masses. And then we're going to make English the world uh, language, the an alchemical world language. And so Shakespeare, and if you go to um, um, Psalm 40, so in, in this alchemical um, lineage, there's 33 levels, right? But there's 13 levels above that for a total of 46 levels. So there's the, 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 the pyramid has 33 levels. And that's what everyone thinks is the top. But there's 13 more levels for a total is that of 46. Like the, what would Those be the 13 capstone? guys run the bottom pyramid. Okay, so Francis Bacon was a 46 degree Freemason. He ran the very top dude. If you go to Psalm 46 in the King James Bible and you count 46 words from the beginning, you get the word shake. And if you count 46 words from the end, you get the word spear. Okay, that's a direct (laughs) codified a language telling you that the four, Shakespeare is giving you 46 degree knowledge inside those plays and inside that language. So Shakespeare himself, his, the language has to be looked at in a, a different way. So this was done as an alchemical attempt to change the world. That's Francis Bacon's writings about America and New Atlantis. Atlantis and all of this. You can see it all. It's really, really easy. And the Cross of Hende comes out about the same time, right? So you've got to figure that's part of it too, right? And Nostradamus is out about this same time. So we've got uh, this milieu going in the United States and in England and in um, France and uh, Italy with the Da Vinci. And so um, they're all reaching this gigantic understanding of what the process is. And like Leonardo's putting it in his paintings and Shakespeare's putting it in his writings and everything. And then it gets upended. Then the whole thing, whether you like it or not, it gets upended in 1666 with the great fire of London. And so in 1666, so in 1665, um, Lord, I'm going to forget his name. The first, uh, first, uh, First uh, um, Prime Minister of England. I always forget this guy's name because I hate his guts so much. Uh, (laughs) I can't remember his name. It'll come to me. He was the first. They overthrew the king in the English Civil War. Walpole? Sir Robert Walpole? No. Begins with the B. That's Britain's first. This is the chronology. So I'm trying to look here. He outlawed Catholicism in the British Empire. So they, he started, that's where Mary, Queen of Scots and all that came from. So he outlaws mm-hmm. Catholicism, and then they, they, they go out and they actually kill Catholics. They go to England, uh, Ireland and kill all the Irish because they're all Catholics. And they go to Scotland and kill all the Scottish that are Catholics. And anyway, so he decides to, um, 
he decides to let the enemy in the gate. I'm not going to go any further than that because I don't want you guys to get censored. But in 1665, he decides to let the enemy in the gate. So the enemy comes in the gate, and the enemy is a bunch of bankers. And the bankers realize that the safest place in Europe to put a bank for money is London. Because you got to mm-hmm. go down the Thames River and you can put a gauntlets up and destroy anyone coming down the river. And you can put all your money into the banks there in England. So magically, a year after the enemy gets in the gate is the Great Fire of London, 1666, in which the place that we now call the City of London, which is a separate entity from London and England, was completely burned out mm-hmm. to the ground. And then get to building in three years, it's all rebuilt and it's a whole banking community. And what they did was they recognized what England and Bacon, Shakespeare, John D. They recognized what they were doing, which was they're trying to create a worldwide alchemical civilization. And they came in and they usurped it and they created the East India Trading Company. Mm-hmm. And they used their theater that they'd learned from Shakespeare and from Francis Bacon to create events, fake events mm-hmm. everywhere around the world to conquer the world. And that's what happened. And that's the so every time that we try to make the world into a better place, this weird force comes in and destroys it, which is the Tower of Babylon or Babel story. That, that's what that story is about. It's about all the people coming together to build, unify a town, and then boom, comes mm-hmm. to chaos and everything is dispersed into chaos, which is what happened. And right now we're at the end of that process and the entire uh, edifice that was built by those people is now falling apart. And That's interesting. You so you you have the faction set up that the alchemical workers, the philosophers, the people that were of these um, of the people basically wanted to create an alchemical society, like Francis Bacon and John Dee. Th- those were separate entities than of the bankers and those different echelons, and they yeah, were in cahoots together. Until 1665. That was long after, um, you know, 50, yeah. 60 years after. After they all, they put in guy. so much work too. They put in so much work. You know what's interesting about 1666 and and like those kind of like magical um, magical dates. Like 1888 was a year that Madame Blavatsky put out her great magnum opus as well, and then you start to see a shift, which is convenient timing too when you look at the Falconelli, Falconelli timeline, because right up into the World Wars and the Great Depression, there was a huge occult like knowledge just swathing over the lands and then now we have a desecration of all of that through these wars do you think that the wars themselves are a part of that banking faction that was coming in and because they saw the same shit going on from people like blavatsky's in the theosophical society absolutely i and i think that it's still going on and so every time that we so Europe is going through this gigantic, um, how do I put it, uh, non-Christian 
alchemical renaissance where they're getting all the um the ancient books and everybody's passing them around and this is going on and there's this big buildup and then boom world war one hits right and everybody's cast into chaos and everything is dispersed into nothingness and then everybody regroups in paris uh, you know, after the war, so 1920, the great Paris, you know, renaissance, where everybody pours into Paris, including Fulconelli and all the alchemists, and Fulconelli's book emerges out of this uh, a milieu, and then this gigantic, huge renaissance of alchemy starts up. By 1930, it's just like, whoa, it's going in America and England and France and Italy, and, and everybody's like super into it, and books are being written and you know i have them they're gone now but there were amazing books of exploring ancient ruins and, and what they mean in america and it was amazing and then boom 1938 you know crashed down and out of this i call this project x because i believe this whole project is being financed by somebody this whole alchemical project, okay? So the Germans, I don't want to use the word that everybody calls because you'll get censored, but the Germans <laughs> of the 30s and 40s, uh, the certain group within, you know, the word where it has two S's in it, there's a group within that group, and that group was, you know, sent out and financed to investigate Falconelli, uh, the ruins in the in the mountains of the Andes, uh, uh, the Mayans, the uh, 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 the Tibetans, uh, uh, everywhere they went everywhere. They went all over the world, and that was financed by the Germans because Hitler himself was obsessed with trying to find the alchemical secret. I know this is shocking, but the very <laughs> first thing that Hitler did when he arrived in Hende, France, in 1938 or 1940, was he went straight up the hill from the train station right to the cross. It's like 500 yards, maybe. No, a thousand wow. yards. So right up the hill, he went right to the cross where he supposedly met somebody and they had a long conversation. Okay? So I'm not... I'll be very careful here. <laughs> it is very possible that what we think was going on in 1930s, 40s, in a certain place in Europe, may not be what we think it is because the same exact forces came in just like they did before and destroyed it. And it was an occult war. It was a it was a war for occult powers. I mean, was. we can say that. Obviously, we know that history has been obscured, and maybe it. it and I'm not denying anything. No, but we have to take into consideration all the possibilities okay i'm just gonna say that but i'm sorry continue and we know that um and we know that early on uh when those particular people actually took power like in 1938 or there they made a specific request to study um non-establishment science that was went out from the very top to the scientific community of that country to study uh, non-establishment views. And so all of these theories started rising up that were pretty amazing, including how the ancient uh, Vedics powered their 
flying craft or Vimyana and uh, all sorts of stuff about, you know, mercury as an alchemical product. And, and so I'm, and I'm no not defending anybody. I'm not defending somebody who did terrible things that they did. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's just curious that every time that it looks like somebody's actually spending the money and investing in looking into this, that the same exact group comes in to upend the whole thing. And then, you know, right now on the Internet, there's this big explosion of Tartaria, which is a great thing. Mm. Um, but mm-hmm. yeah. going back and looking at all these buildings, these photographs of buildings that don't exist anymore, and they're saying, you know, what are these? What's going on here? How come nobody explains this stuff to us? And clearly the buildings <laughs> are alchemical vessels designed to bring down etheric energy okay. into the... Jay. Yep. You're yep. you're touching on something I want to touch on before you before we wrap up right. because but architecture because I'm real big into Pythagorean palaces and I do believe that anything can be used as a talisman that can be charged including the architecture. We have the Gothic cathedrals which I didn't put two and two together but the idea that the Knights Templar through the use of alchemy were able to fund the building of these great cathedrals and not only that but how you're you know architect as magician where who was building who were building these cathedrals uh john d talked about architecture as being one of the greatest art forms you needed to know the quadrivium and understand everything as a whole so can we talk a little bit about these are the architecture you have vitruvius talking about how certain spaces are used for certain things you brought up the cities concept where they're trying to block our our light body from being able to expand. They're also going to be implementing 15 minute cities. And if you know anything about Francis Yates and the art of memory, (laughs) the idea of using models. And and one thing that I learned recently was because when you build a mind palace, right, you envision the palace and you line up the walls with all the trinkets and all this cool stuff. But I didn't know the psychic aspect of it to where if you have a model of this building and you tap into the energy of this simulacra of the actual thing that you're able to see the thoughts and influence people's ideas and extract ideas from people in the real building through the use of some sympathetic magical thing. So can we talk about the architecture and how these cathedrals could have kickstarted a literal transmutation of the ages uh, from, you know, from the iron age to the golden age, uh, the enlightenment. Can we talk about that, please? You know, I'm loving this because you're, you're forcing me into showing you once again, when (laughs) an attempt at an alchemical transformation of society was tried and mostly succeeded. Okay, which was the building of the 500 more Gothic cathedrals all through Europe uh, in the years from 1100 to 1400. uh, During the funded that. There was a great warming period in Europe uh, where you you could grow grapes in Scotland, and uh, it was this amazing period. And this. Uh, the Templars had returned with their alchemical knowledge from Jerusalem, and they started this building process. The church itself never claimed that it was part of it. They weren't Christian edifices. Uh, Fulcanelli is clearly obvious about that, although it, like we were talking about Christianity has an alchemical uh, origin. So in that way, they are Christian, but mostly Egyptian. They're using the sacred geometry and things. And what that did was 
The church had been repressing Europe heavily up until 1000. Uh, you couldn't read, you couldn't write, you couldn't do math. Uh, everything was outlawed. All you could do is work your field, give your stuff over to the, the Duke who ran the feudal system, and then the church would get a little bit of largesse. So suddenly, with the building of the cathedral, you had to learn how to communicate, read, write, uh, math, geometry, especially geometry. Uh, all these things became paramount importance. So suddenly schools were started teaching these things to mostly males who then went out and built these cathedrals. So it was an attempt by the alchemical Templars to transform Europe, which it did. In fact, there would not have been a Reformation or a Renaissance without even mainstream historians say this without the building of the Gothic cathedrals, which transformed Europe into, uh, again, almost did it until forces came in and overthrew. And, you know, um, the Templars were overthrown by, again, these evil forces that keep coming up. And, um, and uh, you know, so what can I say? You know, I, we're, we're, we have a theme in this show of, of, of the alchemical renaissance being destroyed by the same damn dark force. I mean, it's mm. like we're in the same families almost, you know. Absolutely. And, and how you're saying, because we have all the greatest, and I don't want to say greatest, but all the biggest minds of antiquity, and maybe not minds either, but because some, there's some bad people included in that as well, that they were trying to tap into, you know, this idea of World War II being some maybe alchemical or occult war, that the elites, the point is that the elites are wanting to tap into whatever this is. And maybe that's what the whole, you have movies like Star Wars, with, I call him George Ophiuchus now, shout out to Gabe, because he <laughs> we did a Star Wars decode, but the idea that there is something that you're able to tap into, and use but you can use it for whatever is 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 your pleasure you could use it for good or you could use it for evil uh, but the point is that we have the elites tapping into whatever this is and we have the idea of the cross led you to this place in peru can we talk about the caves a little bit because you talk mm. about this place of refuge where you're able to go to avoid this catastrophe but also i want to to touch on because i'm a big fan of tracy twyman's work where what if it isn't just a physical place jay and it's more like a hidden hyperspace kingdom how tracy was alluding to that the elites are able to ascend to right this the the jacob's ladder the third obscured pillar the you know on the masonic tracing boards is it a real place mm. Or is it a Stargate that when you get there, you are able to dissolve to this other reality? So what they do is they choose areas that have certain uh, electromagnetic qualities. Uh, they like um, uh, uh, volcanic tunnels, for instance, because the lava has sealed the outside of the wall, so the minerals, the heavy crystallized minerals, are in a circle. So they're, they're creating vortex uh, hyperfields just on their own. And so they choose these areas. Vulcanelli means Vulcan Canelli. Mm -hmm. Canelli is tunnel in Italian and in uh, Latin, and Vulcan is volcano. So his name means tunnel in the volcano. 
and a lot of the places that he mentions, like La Puy in France, is a vol uh, ancient volcanic site where you can actually walk down into the tunnels, as I have in Shasta and Mount Rainier. Okay. Yes. So, and these places are also known for what UFOs, strange sightings, mm -hmm. weird places, underground cities, all these weird uh, lore is always associated with these places because they're uh, leak places in between the the parallel plasma universes, and so um, that's what you want. You want to be able to go into these places, so it's both. It's a physical place that allows you to enter in to a portal or a trans-dimensional place that allows you to receive information that is not coming from a three-dimensional source, information that's vital to you. And if you don't, when you're being given that information, you better be paying attention. That's all I've got to say, because that's the most important information yes. that's going to be given. And these things are everywhere. I mean, um, you know, if you take a dimethyltryptamine in a lab and you turn off all the lights and you strike the, the say you've got a, a pan of uh, the powder of the dimethyltryptamine, and you turn off the light and you strike it, you get an electrical spark that flies. Because psychedelics allow you to see these other dimensions. They create a small portal hole in not all psychedelics, but organic ones. And so, but even some are inorganic, like DMT. So um, I believe psychedelics play a very important part in uh, alchemy uh, in the past. I think the um, there's many books which, you know, are definitely pointing towards some kind of psychedelic way to uh, get trans-dimensional uh, uh, information. And so... Like Dante's Inferno? I've heard Dante's Inferno is a, a hint at DMT. Yeah, no, no, I, I think it is. I think also the uh, burning bush with Moses. I think uh, I think a lot of this is just like, wow, this is like, you know, if you ever tripped out on, on good psychedelics, you understand what they're really actually talking about. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've gotten really good information from psychedelics, information that changed my life. I mean, really. And um, so I think all of these things are all part of it. And we're moving towards this collective point you know all the um, longitude lines on a globe are separated at the equator but as they move towards the pole they converge and i think that's what we're doing we're converging now into the to this one area where all the knowledge of all this different stuff from music to math to sacred geometry to psychedelics to astronomy to astrology is all converging into this one kind of group mind, which you know people like us are probably the front edge of it and i had the you know, the good graces to work at Gaia for six years where I interviewed and talked to all these great minds. And I was able to, like, become one of the first people to actually create that convergence, but only because of, you know, luck of the draw, really. And um, so I think that's where we're headed right now. And, and I think that you're – I think – here's what I think, because this is, <laughs> like – Alchemy has a sense of humor. That's all I can say. So as mm -hmm. we converge towards the, all of this disparate knowledge becoming one and we become very wise as a species, we're probably going to have a catastrophe. That's the yeah. way it goes. And I think we're headed towards a catastrophe. I don't believe it has anything to do with the Ukraine or anything like that. I think it's going to be... Um, 
a mental disaster brought on by the changing electromagnetic fields. You know, there's a very interesting book. I don't really want to tell people about it, but uh, to make my point, I think it's called A Brief History of the Future. And it's written by one of uh, Francois Mitterrand, former president of France, his top advisor. And um, you can get it on Amazon. And uh, in the book, it was written in the late 70s, early 80s. He says in the book, the biggest problem the human race faces is stupid people. He's real blunt. You know, he's, he's a, he's a French, you know, he's just blunt, right? <laughs> stupid people, stupid people screw up everything. How are we going to get rid of the stupid people? The only way we can get rid of the stupid people is we have to figure out some way, which is what the book's about. And in the book, he actually mentions as being one of the answers to eliminating stupid people. Doesn't really say how it's going to do it, but in retrospect now, here in late 2022, you have to wonder if we haven't just been through a PSYOP that's designed to eliminate stupid people. And uh, so I think, again, there's some kind of weird thing going on right now that we don't see that may be alchemists at work again. Yeah. Yeah. yeah because if you look I, I at agree. the I agree. the father of modern day toxicology, Daddy Paracelsus, I mean, he was the one that helped make this so that's why i said at the beginning of the uh, of the episode it's the alchemist of antiquity that we're using this stuff and then it transformed right it goes underground for a little bit and it's kind of re-emerging but in the shadows these i call them the reptilian overlords but these yeah. the cabal at work these dark forces the archons whatever you want to call them they use the same technology against us That's right there right in our faces like do as i say but not as i do okay now wait and, it's not quite the same what they do is they take the alchemical um processes and they materialize it into technology so it's not okay. really the same yeah okay so yeah. there's a a, a a guy i know he was uh, uh, building houses in in indonesia like 30 years ago and he was American, right? He's just doing it for charity work. Um, and every day he saw this woman, she'd walk by and she would sit in this field and she would just like, you know, be quiet in the field for a half hour. And one day he walked up to her and he said, what do, what do you, every day I see you go at noon and you sit in the field for a half hour. What are you doing? She goes, oh, my husband is a construction worker, you know, 500 miles away. And so we talk. Uh, we, we every day at noon he stops and met, sits down and I stop and sit down and we exchange information and the guy's like wow that's pretty wild and crazy so you know he, ten years later he's still building houses and and he, he sees the the lady the same woman now ten years older only now she's going to a phone booth every day at noon and talking on the phone for an hour. So one day he walks up to her and says, well, wait a minute. You used to go sit over in the field, you know, and be quiet. But now you're talking on the phone. What are you doing? And she goes, oh, I'm talking to my husband. He's working in construction. And he says, well, why are you talking on the phone? He says, well, it's a lot faster. So this is what technology does. It takes the same exact thing, right? And, and, and it kind of uh, it turns it into archonic energy. And, and and so we lose touch with it, which is why I love the Tartaria movement, because 
it's self-evident from looking at the architecture and from understanding it that these people were in touch with something far, far, far greater than what we're in touch with and that they're able to heat their houses and probably read at night and, and everything without any uh, worrying about fires and, and because they're tapping into these larger sources, which are there just waiting for us. And we know yep. that, you know, Nikola Tesla lived in Serbia, which is a huge Tartarian enclave, if you've ever been there. And he must have looked at the buildings and thought, what are these really about, right? And he built his towers and his energy transformation thing because he was an alchemist too. And um, so, yeah, and I think we're headed towards this again, where my hope and dream is that we're going to tear down our cities and rebuild them in an alchemical way in a positive way where we don't have the negativity that we have in our cities now. And uh, it's, it's really about place. You know, place is seriously important and everybody listening should be going out of their way to make the place they live into an alchemical vessel. And, you know, I do, I, I do all sorts of things. I've got, I've got, Oregon pyramids all over the place. I've got, mm -hmm. uh, you know, all sorts of things all the time going because I just want to create a super positive place where I live because I know that is going to have the greatest effect on me and my mental, physical, and spiritual health. Yeah, so because... Nature is everything. It's everything. Yes. Go ahead. Blossom. Go ahead, Romy. Oh, I, I was going to say, I saw that uh, on your YouTube channel, you just had a show not too long ago, kind of where you were diving into Wilhelm Reich, who is just another one of those characters from the same exact time period yeah. that was busting parallels and like creating great new things. And yet again, was taken out by, you know, however, whoever. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you your opinion on, because we know that alchemists, right? That's where they created uh, a lot of the fun stuff. They were able to work with the spirit of the, a lot of plants and they understood plant medicine and plant magic and a lot of the things that are intertwined with nature and the green language basically, uh, in my opinion, is uh, is uh, is like the 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 verbal uh, communication style of what we consider the archetype of the green man, and the right. green man shows up on a lot of these uh, these buildings. But that's not the question. The question is: is this powder of projection? Do you think that this supposed red, sometimes yellow, powder of projection uh, is DMT or it is a drug? It's something. It's an alchemically created substance to thus uh interact with the consciousness in a way so you can create alchemy and understand the wavelengths in between it's um it's endogenous dmt so endogenous means it comes from you it comes from within which is alchemical so yes what is, so serotonin which is emitted by the pineal gland is one atom away from dimethyltryptamine that's a natural producing psychedelic produced by your brain when you're dreaming and all of that. That's when the serotonin comes out. So serotonin's opposite is melatonin, which is um, 
So serotonin is emitted when light hits your eyes. When you wake up in the morning and the light hits your eyes for the first time, your pineal gland begins emitting serotonin. You feel good. You know, it's a really great uh, drug. Uh, um, it makes you feel good. The sunshine kind of gives you a little bit of a psychedelic feeling. And, you know, you wake up and you start, you know, working your day out, right? And as the light fades at night, um, the serotonin begins diminishing and the melatonin begins coming on. What is melatonin? Melatonin is the, um, uh, 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 it's the hormone that causes you to reverse aging. Okay. What is, what is alchemy? Alchemy is enlightenment, spiritual enlightenment, and a long, healthy life. That's what it offers you. That's what it says you get if you practice it. Okay. So, yeah, the alchemists have found a way, and the story of Jesus is about this, to activate the pineal gland, to activate the serotonin and melatonin, and turn them into essentially super serotonin and super melatonin. And so, what? And this is all of their practices from all over the world. They're the same practices. Okay. So what the alchemist does, he has a secret society of friends who will help him, and then he has to help them. And they um, have a chamber, a light, dark, a, a completely light-free chamber. Tomb of uh, illumination. The crypts under the cathedrals. It would be the king's chamber in the pyramid. Um, and then they would go into the dark room, completely no light, not even a sliver. Okay, and for three days, just like Jesus. Okay, and then they come out on the morning, and their alchemist friends take the, the practice is is that you're placed into a casket, a light-free casket. Okay, and your alchemist friends take you to the top of a hill or the top of the pyramid, somewhere where you got a good view of the morning light. You open up the casket. You're blindfolded, just like in Freemasonry. You're taken out. They take the blindfold off as soon as the sun starts hitting the horizon. And for the time that the sun rises, you stare into that sun. And, you know, you will, your knees will buckle. Um, you'll be overloaded by a DMT experience that's endogenous. It is your own DMT experience. And then after five or six minutes of this, they put you back in the casket, take you back into the dark room where that. So you so three days in the dark created the first degree of super melatonin in your pineal gland. When you looked at the sun, that super melatonin was turned into super serotonin, which is a dimethyltryptamine endogenous experience. And then when they put you back in the room, that super serotonin turns into super melatonin and you begin to uh, regrow your nervous system, lose your teeth and regrow them, lose your hair and regrow your hair. Um, painful, long 40-day experience of the rejuvenation of the entire body. So you had the psychedelic spiritual experience of looking at the sun after three days of being in the dark, and then you have the rejuvenation experience of the uh, living in the dark with the melatonin rejuvenating the body. So that's what they were doing. It's endogenous alchemy. It doesn't need to take any kind of thing. It's what the Taoists were doing. Um, what's his name in Thailand is doing it right now. Um, 
Montauk, Montauk Chia is doing this. Um, there's a dark room here in my hometown where they do it. The Peruvian, the Incas were doing it in the caves. It's one of the reasons why the Cross of Hende points at the Inca caves, because that's where they were doing their light, dark work. The cathedrals were the same thing. The crypt was the dark room. They take him out into the morning light of the cathedral where the different color lights would hit the pineal gland, causing all sorts of different field effects, you might say. And and that's that's that right there is the most important information I can give the world. And I hope that people will actually practice this. I really do. Wow. Okay. Wow. So yeah, we're 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 exposing esoteric and occulted secrets on this podcast, which is great. Straight from the man himself, Jay Widener. And yeah, it makes me think of maybe how they're trying to reproduce this with how I brought it up earlier cinema with these cinemagicians is what I call them, where they put you in these movie theaters, a dark place, and they flash a bunch of lights in front of you all at the same time, make you go through all these emotions all at the same time to then as a to, filmmaker, to I can tell you that that is super effective magic and to use the sound and everything is, is like, it can transform you. And I'm about to go see Avatar 2, although I kind of don't want to, but I'm going to go see it anyway, just because I want to see what kind of tricks camera for observation, is. you know, for, for observational science purposes. Yeah, exactly. One of the things that blew my mind with that movie was because I, I, I'm a big Avatar fan as well. Uh, one of the things that blew my mind with that movie, I still haven't watched it, is the fact that he said he took so long to record that movie because he didn't have the technology for it. Does that sound familiar at all? Because I know, Jay, you're real big into the to the moon the landing. Cube. <laughs> the Kubrick. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I mean he, he's um, he was developing the technology. Have you seen the movie Avatar 2? I haven't. No, I've seen the first one. I, I've been meaning to go see the second one, but I need to find a babysitter for three and a half hours. Yeah, exactly. James My Cameron problem. is that. He's like, the holy crap, who has four hours to give to a movie these days, you know? So, no, you know, Avatar 1 had a kind of an alchemical theme to it about the, mm -hmm. the earth re revolting against these uh, beings that were coming in to destroy it. And even the, uh, the substance that they were mining had, you know, uh, anti-gravity force to it and everything. So Avatar was actually a pretty interesting movie, actually. Kind of dumb. But the, tree, the tree as well. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like, you know, it's Kabbalistic. And yeah, like characters in Hollywood like James Cameron where – I don't know if there's like they they're getting picked and selected because of their names or if there's like a, a cosmic duty that you feel because maybe choosing a name or when you get brought into this world and your initiatory process through your parents and that alchemical marriage is kind of setting you on a path. But, you know, JC, every time you kind of see that, you know, in popularity, you're like, oh, you know, you're fulfilling some sort of like prophetic type of uh, archetype. And. I was um, kind of, uh, you know, thinking that about your partner that you worked with, Vincent Bridges, because, you know, like his last name was Bridges and, you know, uh, your last name is Widener. It's like a wider perspective, you know, and, and the bridges are being connected and crossed. And, you know, um, I didn't know if uh, uh, it's OK to, br to bring him up because I know he's your friend and, uh, you know, and he worked with you on this book. But uh you know, uh, what a what a what a great uh, 
what a great partner to have worked with, you know, uh, great, great, great man, huh? Yeah, and also the Cross of Hende is at St. Vincent's Church in uh, Hende, oh. which, you know, oh. I, I went there long before I met Vincent. So it was just like, whoa, you know, and um, no, Vincent was like, I, I remember the night, it was like, I think it was Halloween night, 1996. And I was at my house up in the in Nederland, Colorado at 9,000 feet. And there was a snowstorm and he had bought a bottle of brandy and I had a fire going and he's like, well, what are you working on? You know, I didn't know who he was. Dan Winter had introduced me. And um, oh, you're friends with Dan before you were friends with Vincent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dan, Dan actually worked at Gaia with me. Um, and then I, you know, I told him I didn't want to tell anybody because, you know, he's trying to keep my work a secret. And then he started talking about the, the Kabbalah and the Tree of Life. And I realized that the cross of Hende actually looked a little bit like the diagrams he was showing me. And then I just opened it up and I showed him, spent like two hours showing all my work. And he was like, all, he's just over and over, he's going, holy shit. Holy shit! Holy shit! <laughs> Holy shit! Right, and then and then and then I got done, and because I was, I was not as astute in occult studies as Vincent, so I mm -hmm. was really coming at it from more of a, you know, a, a puzzle, trying to solve a puzzle, mm -hmm. and I got done, and he kind of sat back. I took a big drink of brandy, and he and he he looked at me and said, "Do you realize what you just did?" I was like, well, what? <laughs> and he goes, you just connected alchemy with the eschatology. I went, mm -hmm. I did? <laughs> you know? I would have loved to got to meet him, to, to get to meet him and, and maybe have him on an episode. I mean, you know, rest in peace. He, uh, but... he did. Rest in peace. He was awesome. He brought all of that knowledge of the, of the history. That's mm -hmm. all him. You know, that mm -hmm. was all him. It was, it was like... It would be like a high school team, you know, getting like the best yeah. pro football player right on the team. Yep. You know, I was like, whoa, <laughs> they started mowing over me. At first, I was a little angry about it because he was mowing over me. But then I realized, <laughs> no, 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 just let him go. Just let him go. Yeah, He's yeah. going to get it all. And he busted his ass. And and thank you, Vincent. You know, I don't get many chances to thank you for the, the work that you contributed to the the Henday material, but he was, you were an awesome guy. And, you know, he died, by the way, he was running the alchemical uh, museum in Prague uh, mm -hmm. the last three years yeah. of his life. And he died. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever been there, but they have these stairs, you know, hundreds of stairs going up. He died going up those stairs. So. Really? Hard yeah. Time. Cause he was a Edward Kelly esotericist. I mean, one of the leading names in that. And I, and I came through his information doing uh, research on John D yep. and you know, the angel Enochian and Enochian magic and all that stuff. And that's how I stumbled across this book. And, yep. and I had told, yeah, Rudolph the second, I have told uh, Romy here about Vincent. He was blown away. And then he's like, Oh, do you check this book out? And it was you, you with Vincent. I was like, Oh man, so that's how I got introduced to this. And Jay, this has been great, man. I, I really yeah. love this. I enjoyed our conversation. Is there anything, any closing thoughts that you want to leave with the listeners before we get out of here as far as what they can do or what's to come next or what what, what can they do in their lives to, to, I don't know, step outside and, and maybe not get sucked into this alchemical storm that's going on right now and with, with life? 
Uh, I, I would say just remember and realize that you are in control of your reality and don't ever let anyone ever tell you that you're not. And um, I am living proof that this is so. I made it a scientific experiment to see if I could do what I wanted to do, and I did, and you can too. You just have to concentrate. You need discipline, 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 discipline. That's what you need. You need to wake up every day and plan your day and devote your life to the seeking of knowledge and the spread of knowledge uh, in a benevolent way and don't ask for money and uh, you will be very happy with the results. Absolutely. And thank you so much, Jay, for coming on. I would yep. love to have you back on. I know you said that everybody wants to talk to you about Kubrick, but I would like to talk to you about Kubrick and your work and your documentaries. I know you have a few. Uh, do you Can you plug your stuff where people can find you? I know you have a great YouTube channel. And do you have any upcoming projects that you want to plug for the people listening so they can check those out? Your website or anything? I have projects, but I can't talk about them. But you can go to my YouTube, Reality Check. Just type in my name and reality check. Also, I have jwidener.com and my films. I have about 25 films that are on Gaia.com and Amazon. And uh, you can check those out, Healing the Luminous Body and um, uh, Alex Gray and all the great uh, teachers of the last few years I've done films with. And, um, and thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Ab absolutely, Jay. Anytime. This is an honor. And thank you so much again. <laughs>